Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee Law School. I teach and research in the areas of business law, including corporate governance and ethics, commercial law, including contracts, and I've also focused on personhood rights. The topic of today's episode is Amy Coney Barrett and the legacy of transracial adoption. And today we'll be engaging in a bit of a history lesson while providing some context to the debate about comments. Justice Barrett has made. You may recall the differing reactions when Justice Barrett said during her confirmation hearing that she wept with her daughter when she heard about George Floyd, or in response to how she described her children during that confirmation hearing. You may also have heard about the responses to her inquiries during the recent Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health oral arguments when she suggested that the ability to abandon a child, no questions asked, was reason for restricting access to abortion care. These comments have some racialized implications that my guests, Eleanor Brown and Kimberly Mutcherson, will illuminate today. So I've assembled these great guests today, and I will allow them to introduce themselves. First, Dean Kim. So first, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this uh, conversation. Um, so as you said, my name is Kim Mutcherson. I am the co-dean and a professor of law at Rutgers Law School um, in Camden, New Jersey. So I am a Philadelphia-facing person, not a New York-facing person. Um, and I am a reproductive justice scholar. So for those who don't know what reproductive justice is, it is a movement um, that was created by Black women in the 90s um, that focuses on the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, um, and the right to parent your child in safe and healthy environments. So my work has really been in family law, in reproductive rights, and, and a whole range of different issues related to reproductive justice. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And Eleanor. Um, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I really am delighted to be here. Um, my name is Eleanor Brown. I am a professor of law and international affairs at the Pennsylvania State University, the state university in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And also, um, I have an affiliation at the Rock Ethics Institute, also at Penn State. Um, I am a scholar broadly of law and development, particularly of asset acquisition, how people acquire assets um, and historically disenfranchised people, particularly Black people and Black West Indians. I also am a scholar of immigration. More recently, I've been doing work with um, colleagues um, in family law. And um, I am from, as you can tell from my accent, my native Caribbean. Um, and uh, although I don't write in the area of um, reproductive justice, um, I'm very active in that area in my personal life and in nonprofits that I support. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Happy to be here today. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank both of you so much. And I should say, you know, I consider both these women to be, you know, mentors and friends. So um, um, I I get to fangirl a little bit with my guests today. Uh, So I'm so happy to have (laughs) them here. So let's get into the discussion. And if you'd like to call in live, this is a call-in show. Our toll-free number is 1-888-346-9141. So the first topic today, um, what is trans racial adoption and what is it about the history of transracial adoption that has been problematic? And I'll, I'll throw that first question to Kim, since, you know, you're an expert on these issues. Could you explain some of that historical context about uh, transracial adoption of uh, black children in particular? Sure, absolutely. So transracial adoption obviously refers to the idea of people of one race adopting children um, of another race. And and this has um, been um, an an issue um, within the Black community for quite some time. Um, And the part of this history is a history of Um, you know, Christian missionaries who would travel to sort of civilize um, folks in other countries or even in parts of the United States. Um, And part of that process was consistently about taking children from their families because it was assumed that if you stayed in your um, um, in your birth family, that they, they wouldn't be able to turn you into the kind of person um, that they wanted to turn you into. So, um, you know, one of the sort of basic things that we know from a historical context is that taking children from their communities has been used consistently as a way to destroy uh, communities. So you have to sort of keep that in the back of your mind, even as we think about what's happening in in the modern day. And I should also say the the other thing that I want to say about this is, you know, this history is also a history that is very much a part of uh, Native American folks in this country. So, you know, thinking about the boarding schools that were set up, um, the fact that we have an Indian Child Welfare Act specifically because of the number of Native children who are being adopted um, outside of their of, of their tribes and their communities really speaks to the ways in which the U.S. has this very strong history of separating certain children from their families of origin. Wow. Wow. And, you know, Eleanor, you you are an international scholar and you're from the Caribbean. um, And, you know, Justice Barrett's children are Haitian. Um, Is there something something particularly troubling about the history of these adoptions in the Caribbean, these transracial adoptions? So um, thank you, Kim, for that um, excellent introduction. Um, Let me say the following. Um, because I want to speak more broadly than Justice ACB. Um, for speed, I'm going to refer to her as Justice ACB. And then I want to speak specifically to Justice ACB. Um, I, my view, um, and that view has been influenced by my childhood and the fact that much of my life has been spent in my native Jamaica, is that... When a country is resource constrained, as my country is, and Haiti, of course, um, would be the poorest country in the region, and I think the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, um, there is a role because of the resource challenges um, to recognize that that the state and other entities in the countries might not be able to provide the resources that one might typically want for children. So I recognize that reality. 
I particularly recognize that reality in the context of Haiti, although I'm not Haitian. And, um, and I noted that Justice ACB specifically referred to the fact that one of her children um, came to her family after the Haitian earthquake. Um, so it would be naive of me not to acknowledge that reality. Um, having said that, I have had some concern for some time that the persons who have responsibilities for considering whether or not children of Caribbean origin um, are appropriately placed in these families outside of the region are not being um, sufficiently thoughtful. And part of this might simply be a matter of not having the resources to fully understand about what it means for black children to be adopted in contexts in which they are not the majority, and particularly in the context of the United States, which has a very, very specific history about our own race. I think that if you are contemplating those types of adoptions, you have a responsibility to ask. And I have said this to persons in my native Jamaica um, repeatedly, whether or not the parents who are adopting the children have spent some time thinking about what it means to be of a different racial group and particularly white um, and adopting black children and to have a frank conversation with those parents about how they manage, how they plan to manage the complications that come with that. I think to deny those complications is naive. And I think to avoid that conversation at the beginning is potentially setting the children up for being in familial situations where those very difficult questions have not been asked. So when I say this, I am saying this not only in the context of the US, but in the context of the decision makers in the countries of origin who are approving those adoptions. So that's the first point I have to make. Um, what was concerning to me um, about Justice ACB, and I should point out, I didn't come to this with a pre-existing view. The first time I knew that Justice ACB had two children who had been adopted from Haiti was when she came into the public. I knew, of course, who she was because she had been talked about for years, but um, I didn't know the intricacies of her family until she came into the public domain um, during the confirmation hearing. Um, my first, and Carlis, please stop me if you need me, because I'm going to say something a little bit more broadly. My first exposure to the, to the fact that this was um, the context of her family was, the, um, was when the president had a reception at the White House. And at that reception, um, you know, her family was there, and um, of course I noticed her children. And what struck me about that reception, because remember this reception was in the height of the pandemic, was that um, the persons at the reception appeared to me to be largely unmasked. And I remember there was a conversation about, um, about the fact that that was happening. I remember there were academics from her own university who went to that reception and who returned to their academic institutions and who were criticized at their academic institutions for the fact that they had not followed the protocols at the White House. Now, the reason I'm raising that, and I'm doing this sequentially, 
is I recognize there's a complex history around how people pursue, pursue motherhood. I recognize there's a complex history around criticizing people's parental decisions. I, it would be naive of me not to raise that background, but I, as a black mother, particularly in light of all of the, the history that was, all of the medical information that was coming out about the disproportionate likelihood of black people experiencing negative outcomes from COVID and of black children experiencing negative outcomes from COVID, felt that, and I had this conversation with several other mothers of multiple races, including black mothers, felt that there needed to be some thoughtfulness about whether it was wise for children to be unmasked in that sort of situation. Having said that, I recognize reasonable people might disagree. So I'm going to set that aside. The second thing that happened was in the context, and I know we'll talk more about this, so I'm going to stop very shortly, was in the context of the hearing, I felt that there needed to be a conversation about the way that the children were introduced and what the way the children were introduced potentially said about the way the children were perceived. And then, and at all points, I think I've really tried to view the situation with, uh, with open eyes and to give the parents the benefit of the doubt, because as I said, parenting is a complicated thing. And then the third thing was in the context of the oral argument and the analogies that were made to safe haven laws, which is what Carly's referenced earlier. So those three things I want to talk about specifically with reference to her. Forgive me for going on a little long. No, it, it's okay. Cause I think, you know, you, you make a strong connection to, to Kim's opening statements and, and what it makes me think about um, is Kim's comments about both the dual complex of destroying communities, uh, the white savior complex, which we haven't said today, but which is kind of inherent in what we're saying. Um, and your comments about not asking the right questions of these white parents before they adopt transracially, either from the government entities or the private entities, right? So, you know, what what is it, um, you know, about the idea that, you know, it's okay for someone like her to come into a foreign country, into Haiti, take these children without the proper inquiries? Um, you know, is, what what is, it, you know, you noted that, you know, as a black mother, you felt X way. Um, and I think that there is something unique and unrecognized about black motherhood, right? And about being a black mother of black children um, that is unspoken and un unknown that we don't place value on. Um, and, and just, I don't, I feel like I didn't even ask a question, but you know, how does the idea of both, you know, the idea that communities are destroyed by these transracial adoptions and the white savior complex kind of combine for us to end up in these situations in the first place. And either of you can, can address it. I feel like Kim's shaking her head. So she, I feel like you might have a Well, a well I, I, I really want to talk about black motherhood in this context. Um, in large part, because I think, you know, as we talk about black families, we have consistently, um, you know, from the sort of dominant community heard these calls of, well, you know, black mothers are really the problem, right? That, you know, families are being headed up by black women um, and that they are basically, you know, failing to raise their children in a way um, that allows those children to grow up to be happy um, and healthy citizens. So, you know, black women are consistently being accused of failures um, as mothers. It's very hard for us to sort of be able to wear that mantle of good motherhood because that sort of idea idealized motherhood is always given to white women, 
right? They sort of start with that. Um, and we have to sort of, you know, beg and scrape in order to get it. And I think because of that, it becomes easier to think that when you take a Black child out of a Black family and away from a Black mother, that you are, you are protecting that child, right? And you are giving that child a better future than that mother or that family um, would ever have been able to give that child. And, I mean, think back to, you know, the Moynihan report in the in the 60s, yeah. right? The yeah. idea that, you know, Black families are disintegrating and that the reason why that is is because they are too matriarchal um, and Black men aren't around and Black women are, are, are sort of running families. So that that is a thread that runs through so much of this um, and something I think we have to be really, really conscious of, this idea that, these are children who are being rescued from their families and rescued from their communities, as opposed to thinking about what are the ways that we can provide, you know, the scaffolding and services and social safety net um, that allow kids to be raised by in their families of origin. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I think about just even as describing what we're going to talk about today and in, in thinking about how to frame it um, you know, I was kind of checking myself because, you know, I hedge a little bit and question whether I'm being too critical of ACB in a way that if this was a show about uh, or the episode was focused on black mothers, I don't know that I would hedge in the same way. Right. Like, you know, I think we hedge when we are questioning white mothers in a way that we do not hedge, even as black women, when we are talking yes. about black mothers in the black community. And, you know, it's it's an outgrowth of this idea that white motherhood is the ideal and, you know, black mothers can be questioned and challenged. And it seems to filter through into adoption and into the foster care system as well. Right. And into the, the idea that we would never, we're always going to check and challenge black mothers, but, you know, we're going to assume that white mothers are doing the right thing. Um, and so Eleanor, I'd love for you to kind of, you know, piggyback on what Kim and, and I just talked about and, and maybe tell us a little bit about like the historical context of, of like the white savior complex and, and how it might play out in, in the context of adoptions in the Caribbean and things you've seen in the Caribbean in your experience. Okay. So let me, let me start by saying this. Um, I, there is a scholarship in this area and I think it's always important to give context. I'm not a scholar in this area, so I should begin by saying that. I, the reason that I started by saying that I tried my hardest to view this with an open mind and to give Justice ACB the benefit of the doubt, and I felt it was important to say that, is that there is no question that in the context of plantation slave societies, which is what we share in common, the history of transatlantic slavery, the Black Atlantic, um, the history we share in common is enslavement, um, people being brought across the Middle Passage to work in large agricultural enterprises. That is a Jamaican history, a Haitian history, a Southern United States history. Clearly, differences and complexities, but in broad brush, that's what we're talking about. A significant part of that is the church, the clergy, the legitimization of this dehumanization of human beings by the church and the clergy. And the justification uh, for that being that there was a Christian obligation to make these people better 
than they were in their unchristianized state. So I, <laughs> that is something we share in common. Adoption comes in the context of that. A view of the taking of the children for their own good, for the purpose of civilizing, which piggybacks off what Kim said. The reason I emphasize that and the reason I say what I said at the beginning is that if you have countries where there has been a significant socialization in the notion of the church as a place for the betterment of children and persons come to adopt a child and those persons have a religious background. And again, I know nothing more than what is in the public domain about Justice ACB. But it appears to me, based on what is the public domain, that there is a significant religious background there. And so it it would make it would it is completely understandable to me that in a context in which missionaries have historically played a significant role in um in governing the adoption of children, and there has been a historical inclination to give missionaries the benefit of the doubt for all of the reasons that I just discussed, that people would be less inclined than perhaps they would be to ask questions because these people are doing it out of good Christian faith, okay? Um, now, what there is certainly not in my own country, I think, a sufficient recognition of, and I, and I say this also recognizing that there are significant numbers of Caribbean people who have asked questions, not just academically, but in real life, about whether or not we have been too uncritical about the role his Christianity and the way Christianity has been practiced has historically played in the way our children have been socialized and how we have given away our children. There are people asking those questions. I'm not in any way saying those questions are not being asked. But I am saying that in the Caribbean, I'm not sure that there is a sufficient appreciation of the complexities of the church and what the church means in the United States. It's a different thing mm for black missionaries to arrive and say, we recognize there has been an earthquake, we recognize there has been a, there is a tremendous resource constraint, we can be helpful. Then it is for persons coming out of a different Christian tradition, a Christian tradition which in the most positive view of them have been less critical than they should have been of a history of white supremacy. <laughs> That's the most generous way I could, <laughs> could put it, right? Um, so you cannot view, even if you're, this, if, if you're inclined to be generous in your view, you can't view all Christians as coming in with the same orientation. There are mm -hmm. complex differences in Christianity in the United States. And what I am saying is I have concerns that the persons who are making the decision do not understand the difference between these different Christianities and what it means for somebody to be going into a white Christian household, a white fundamentalist Christian household. That, am I making sense, right? Yes. And, mm -hmm. and so I have nothing more than what is in the public domain, but from what is in the public domain, it appears to me that those questions may not have been asked, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what makes me think more that those questions may not have been asked is um, if I am a mother of a 
household in which there are children who are white and there are children who are black. And I am preparing comments to introduce my family to the world. I am going to be very thoughtful about the way in which I talk about those black children in relation to the way in which I talk about those white children. And so even if I give the best benefit of the doubt, and I do not in any way impute motive, I am concerned by the fact that a telephone call was not made to a black mother to say, this is what I am going to say. I am going to read it out to you. Tell me what you think about what I am going to say. And... <laughs> That, that, that sort of assumes that she had a black mother that she could have reached out to, right? And it's exactly. about whether she even has black people in her community, in her circle, who she has access to in that way. Right. And so it is a, it is it is it's an assumption on my part. You're a hundred percent right. But my point is I cannot imagine that there is a black woman I know who could have heard what she was going to see, who th- would not say to her. To, oh, to my ears, this is what I'm hearing. And perhaps you might phrase this differently, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, and the reason that is so concerning to me, the reason that is so concerning to me is the way in which the children were described. One child is described as having a legal mind that is very much like her parents, both you know, distinguished lawyers. One child is described as having a math gene um, you know, very, very good at math. Another child is described as having an extraordinary future as an author writing complex essays at a young age. The black children were described as happy-go-lucky and described as having athletic aptitude, being able to bench press lots of pounds in a gym. That's two different types of descriptions. And it makes one wonder whether or not again, an assumption, and I'm pointing out the assumptions, that might speak to the, the aspirations for the child, for, the, for what the child in the context of that home understands as what is possible for them. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so yes. And I, I want to pause, I want to pause you and, and go ahead and directly quote uh, Justice ACB because I printed the quote out because, um, yes. you know, we are lawyers, we should be fair. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes, yes. let's, I'll just read what she said during her confirmation hearing. Uh, this is what she said. The eldest is a sophomore in college who might follow parents into a career in the law. The second child, Vivian, came to them from Haiti. When she arrived, she was so weak and told she might never walk or talk normally. But now she deadlifts as much as the male athletes in our gym. The third is described as sharing her parents' love for the liberal arts and also has a special talent for math. Their son and fourth child joined them after the devastating earthquake and was was shocked to see snow in Chicago. Other than this, he is only represented in terms of his happy-go-lucky attitude. Their second son, Liam, is smart, strong, and kind. The sixth child is a daughter named Julia, who is working hard to realize her goal of becoming an author and has recently self-published. And finally, the youngest, Jonathan, has Down syndrome and is the family favorite. So that's how she described the seven children. And I got that description from Regine Jean-Charles in her Ms. Magazine article. And so, you know, I will say personally, I didn't watch the hearing, but I knew which two children were Black. 
<laughs> from that description. Absolutely. She doesn't say my black children, but I knew which two children were black from the way she described them immediately. Um, and and what happened in the press and what happened everywhere, you know, Regine John, Regine Charles, John Charles's article and Ms. You know, tries to explain why. Lots of other articles by black authors were like, this is problematic. And then there were lots of response articles from white publications saying, oh, the liberals are on a witch hunt and we're we're being mean, right? Um, and so you both are black mothers, <laughs> you know. How did that description, you know, Eleanor, you started to get into it, Kim, like what, what did you think when you when you heard that description of her children? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, even if you even if you hadn't been, you know, if, if you didn't know who the different children were, you would have said, oh, those are the, the two children who are adopted um, and who are black. And there's something about that that I think, um, you know, speaks to the ways that, um, frankly, a lot of white people don't interact with black people in this country in any sort of um, intimate way, right? Um, so that, you know, as, as, as Eleanor was suggesting, you know, is there somebody who you can call up and say, you know, here's what, here's what I'm thinking, or these are the things that are happening um, with my children, and I am not a black person in America, I would love to, you know, uh, be able to engage with you about this. And, and that's the kind of thing that you do with a friend, Right. It's not the kind of thing where you can just call up somebody who you work with and have those kinds of conversations. And so, you know, if you're not prepared to confront your own limitations as a parent who is adopting a child who is going to be raised as a black person um, in this country. I mean, one of the other things that she said in that in the confirmation hearing that I thought was really interesting was when she was being asked about George Floyd um, and she sort of acknowledged, you know, racism and, you know, crying with her with her oldest daughter, with her her daughter, who is black um, about George Floyd's um, murder. Um, and she said, you know, she's really been raised in a cocoon. And I thought, you know, there's only so much cocooning you can do. Right. Yeah. And the fact that mm -hmm. you don't sort of recognize the ways in which her blackness has been relevant to her doesn't mean that it hasn't been relevant. Doesn't mean that she hasn't felt the ways in which she looks different from her family. Um, doesn't mean that she hasn't had incidents that maybe she hasn't even shared with her parents, right? Where she's really made very um, conscious of the fact um, that she is different in a country that doesn't value difference. Um, so, you know, sort of going back again to what Eleanor said, you know, there are, um, I, I would never take the position that transracial adoption should never happen, right? That's, that, that's not my position at all. Um, but certainly it should be done with very open eyes um, and with a recognition that colorblindness and love um, are not sufficient in this context. Eleanor. So, so um, thank you so much, Kim. So, so again, I want to begin by saying, which I've tried to be very careful of say, about saying, that, you know, when I was in grad school and doing some philosophy, we were always taught that when you have resource constraints, you're choosing between, you're making difficult choices. I would never say to Haitian decision makers that given the profound resource constraints in a country, and particularly in the context of natural disaster, they have the, the, the you know, they, they, can, they can say, you know, these are not people that we would consider for, um, for our children to be adopted. I, I could never make a statement like that. However, I think even if it is for the purpose of getting them to think about what they're entering into, you've got to ask some questions. And 
assuming that Justice ACB is a thoughtful, bright human being, which I think is a reasonable assumption given that she's on the Supreme Court, I don't think those questions were asked. I also do not think that it is reasonable at a confirmation hearing when you're asked about race. This is outside of the context of the George Floyd question. And I had a similar thought that Kim had, which is that there is only so much shielding that one can do in America. It's just a reality of the, of the and, and there's a series of conversations, you know, we all hear about the talk that black parents have to have with their children and which they do and which they do early, of course, in an age appropriate fashion, precisely because part of the process of socialization is you will interact with state actors who will not treat you fairly and who might even kill you, mm-hmm. which is a very, very terrible thing to see. But you start that conversation early in an age-appropriate manner because the process of having that conversation over several years is a process of educating children about how to manage these these situations in ways that that make it less likely that there will be fatal outcomes. That's what that conversation is about. It's about parents saying, I am socializing you. So when it happens, you have 10, 15, 20 years of experience to draw on to negotiate that situation. It is not, in my view, reasonable, particularly given all that we've learned about the United States, not because it wasn't always happening, but because people now have cameras long, long, long before George Floyd, Mm -hmm. to not have that conversation with children. So what is concerning about what Kim just said is that it implies that that conversation has not been had, which undermines the child's long-term ability irrespective of what the child is feeling, which is also important in what Kim just said, to be able to negotiate those situations. So that's something that's problematic. Um, I also think that in the context of a hearing when you're asked about race, the answer she gave was the standard answer that you expect from conservative nominees. I get that. However, you are a mother and you are a mother of black children. So you have an obligation, I believe, because you have not separated your you know, we always talk about the private-public separation. You have not, you introduced your children, you brought them into the public domain. They sat behind you at that hearing and you introduced them and referenced them. So when people ask you about race, you have to say, as a mother, in my view, even if you give the standard conservative answer, you need to say something about how you manage the complexities of what it means to parent black children. You need to say something about that. You don't get in my view to not say something about that when you have brought the children into the public domain. It's a different mm-hmm. thing if you didn't bring them into the public domain. Am I making sense? So that's yes. the other thing. Please. That's the other thing. Now, the other thing now that I'm going to say, and again, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. I'm sure Carlis is going to say more about this, is what was so deeply concerning to me about the comments that were made in the context of the oral argument um, nobody says it better than Joy and Reed. I wish I had the clip. I should have thought about this before. Is when a mother gives a child up, that is not a decision that is lightly made. That is not something that people in ideal circumstances typically choose to do. That is something that in which a situation is profoundly non-ideal and in which a mother believes this is the only choice that I have. Typically, that is what we're dealing with. 
what was so concerning to me about the comment was that it, in my view, rec represented a failure to grapple with what those mothers in Haiti would have had to do to give up their children. Mm -hmm. You understand? So there is not, in my view, a sufficient appreciation of the fact that there is a mother in Haiti who made a heart-wrenching decision to give up her child. And, and we need to acknowledge that. We need to know that. We need to respect that. We need to, in the process of parenting the children, say there is somebody who loved you very, very much and who felt she had no choice but to make this decision. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, so, am I making sense? Am I yes, making sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yes. And that is what was so problematic about the comic book. In, uh, no, clearly there, there were a lot of other things that were problematic about it. Clearly, you know, <laughs> I, I, I disagree deeply with the sentiment that was expressed in what she said. So uh, from a broader reproductive rights perspective, it was a highly problematic comment. But in the context of being the mother who has received children that another mother, a Haitian mother, a black mother gave up, they, it was particularly problematic because it fails to recognize the pain that was inherent in the decision that that mother made. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So you're, you're and I, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, it's interesting to me in both the description of the children um, and her comments about the George Floyd situation, you know, when, when she, I didn't pull the exact quote, but when asked about, you know, George Floyd and racial reckoning, you know, she, she basically kind of did what, what a lot of white liberals do when they say, I have a black friend. It was like, well, as a mother of black children. Um, and to me, my thought was, does it take being a mother of black children to understand mm -hmm. that it's, it's a problem to see a black man lynched in the streets? Like, is, do you need to be a mother of black? Like, what about your other five children who weren't black? What are you telling them? Is this only an issue for your two black children? Or is it not something that should have been like, was on, only your black daughter weeping? Like what, mm -hmm. Were your other mm. kids okay with it? And so it kind of continues the separation of, you know, like it made me feel like, are these children othered in the home in every context? Um, and then in, in the description context, you know, not knowing that strong black woman, happy black man is a stereotype <laughs> that you should not perpetuate. You know, that is literally a stereotype that dates back to slavery. And that is how you chose to describe your two black children, which is why every black person in America had pause when we heard it because it, it's what we hear all the time strong black woman happy black man strong black and that is that is the only thing you have to say you know about your black children and it makes Kali, me wonder Kali, yeah Kali, sorry to interrupt you it's not just that you know it is the there's a clear demarcation between one set of children who are described in a highly intellectual way yes. math the word she used was math gene the word math gene is a quotation mm -hmm. that's a direct quotation she talked about inheriting the legal mind of the parents. She talked about extraordinary promise as an author. Those are intellectual descriptions. They speak mm -hmm. to what the child's intellectual and professional promises. That's a clear demarcation. Am I making sense? Right. Mm -hmm. yes. 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 And it makes me wonder, like, are you, are you getting past your children's skin color? Like, do you even, do you, are you getting into who your children are inside um, or, or are they simply these others in your household? There's a separation there. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, we obviously we're not in their house. We can't right. <laughs> we don't know what happens. But, you know, I, I just I don't have children. I don't know. But I think it's telling how you describe your children. 
Yes, yeah, and absolutely. I want, as I said, at every juncture, I've tried to give the benefit of the doubt. So I am willing to give the benefit of the doubt there. But what I am, what is problematic to me, even if all of these things that were just said are not true, what is problematic to me is that you have not thought you had an obligation to find a black friend, to pick up the phone and read what you're going to say about them. It's part of my responsibility as a parent who has a trusty fiduciary relationship to children. And you're not doing that because of the way the world is going to perceive you. You're doing that because you're creating a long-term public record, which long after you have died, your children will hear. You understand? And you want those children to know that they are so loved and respected in that household, that you were thoughtful about the way you described them. You have that fiduciary responsibility as a parent who is a trustee. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. And I'm saying she didn't, she didn't, she, I, I did, I don't perceive that she fulfilled that responsibility because I can't think of a black mother who would have said to her, listen, we need to reframe this. This is not the way to describe the children. Right. So I, um, so anyway, and I, and I also want to say that I, the reason I am so thoughtful about it is also because I have so many friends, many of whom are white, who have black adoptive children who are extraordinarily thoughtful, very, very thoughtful. And so I know it is possible because I know people who are doing it in a very, very thoughtful way. So that's why I don't think it is unreasonable anyway. You, you understand? Go ahead, Kim. So, so I want to say I want to say two things. Um, one of the things that I want to say is is that part of what Eleanor is saying there sort of goes back to what I was saying before, right? Which is this idea that you can sort of walk into these adoptions and say, well, it's all about love, and we're we're going to be colorblind, and by doing that, we're going to raise kids who are happy and healthy, and who you know sort of change the world, right? So that's that's the first mistake. But the second thing that I want to circle back to is this idea of of black motherhood, right? Because whether in the context of abortion or in the context of, you know, deciding to give your child up um, for adoption, those are parenting choices, right? The vast majority of women who terminate pregnancies have children at home already. They are making decisions about their ability to parent and to parent well, given the world uh, that we live in, right? And so when a woman says, and especially in the United States, where you have more of an opportunity opportunity to have an open adoption, right? My assumption is that, you know, and again, we're making assumptions here, but that there is no ongoing relationship between Justice Barrett's adopted children and their families um, back in Haiti. And if I'm wrong about that, I would love to know that I'm wrong about that. But, you know, at least in the United States, there are these opportunities for open adoption where, you know, a child whose whose mother, whose black mother decides this is not my good parenting choice in this set of circumstances is to give this child up for adoption to a family that will love them and care for them and respect their their heritage um, can also potentially have a relationship with those children as they grow. And that's a really powerful thing and something that I think can often be um, very helpful when white parents adopt black children, because they will continue to have one, they'll know how deeply they are loved because they continue to have a relationship um, with their mother, but also they have somebody in their life who understands their life experience in ways that their white parents simply cannot ever understand. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And could yeah. I say one other, one other thing, Carly's? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no... The one thing I, I have not said enough about is there was an initial decision whether or not Justice ACB realized that she was making the decision 
to put her black children in the public domain, to put all her children, to put all of her family in the public domain. I want to make clear that I do not believe it would have been reasonable for me to be asking the questions I'm asking if Justice ACB had made a different set of decisions. If she had decided this is not somewhere, this might, this is a separate sphere. And I'm, again, there's a whole literature on the public-private separate spheres. So if she had decided this is not, so, this, I would be willing to draw the line because I would, that would have been a decision that she made and I would have, there would have been no basis for me to. But once you put, you, as part of your process of humanizing yourself, and let's be clear, that's part of what's going on. Part of what's going on is saying, I'm a family lady, I'm a mother, you know, you know, that's, you know, and there are all of these senators, you know, saying all these glowing things about her as a family lady and a mother, right? <laughs> and so you're making a decision about how you present yourself as a public person, and the child, the black children are part of of what you're talking about you see what i'm saying so once you do that and you say what you say you have put in the public domain um something that black mothers in my view i believe i have an obligation to say what i'm saying because i think that when you are parenting black children there's a certain set of responsibilities that come with that responsibilities that we may not have chosen nobody wants to be having the talk with your child you would much rather not be having the talk um, but the world that we live in forces you to do that. And so I'm, so you, you, you get where I'm going. You get where I'm going. You know, I think about my childhood, um, with my parents, both of whom are, are black and, um, you know, the, the, the way that I am raising my children and the ways in which race is ever present, right? Um, you know, this is not a household where, um, talking about race is racism, right? Which is a sort of weird thing that seems to have become, um, <laughs> something that people believe is true. Um, but talking about race is a very natural thing. And I grew up talking about race all the time and thinking about race and thinking about how this country um, has functioned and the many ways in which this country has failed to live up to, you know, its promises so that those are very easy conversations to have. Um, and I think that for a lot of white people, those are very difficult conversations to have, Right. Um, and there's something I think that's really important about being a black person or a person of color who is raised in this country um, about being able and willing and comfortable to deal with race on a regular basis, to accept this is the world that we live in and I want to change this world. Um, but I also recognize the ways in which race is salient over and over and over again in the smallest and biggest ways. Right. So whether it is. Um, do you know how to do your child's hair? And if you yeah. don't know how to do your child's hair, where are you going to find someplace where your child can get her, her hair done, right? What's your lotion regimen? <laughs> <Right? laughs> all these all these things that, that seem sort of minor and yet are, are, are part of how so many of us grow up because we grow up with Black parents. Um, and if, you're, if your parents aren't Black, what are the ways in which they can sort of figure out some of these things, minor and major, that are going to be really important to how you create your identity as a black person. And Carl, and again here, I thank you so much for saying that, Kim. Carlis, I want to say there are parents, many of whom are white, who are doing the work. A hundred percent. The work, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, and you know, you know, I like the way that Kim laid out 
um, you know, her childhood and her parents and their parenting, um, the way they parented. You know, coming from the West Indies, coming from the Caribbean, which are overwhelmingly blood majority black societies, um, you know, I was raised in a different context. And, um, you know, bl black, undoubtedly black, undoubtedly, um, you know, coming out of a post-colonial um, context in which plantation slavery was a very significant part of our history. But nevertheless, in a majority black society, one of the responsibilities that I explain, I believe, not all West Indians agree with me, not all Caribbean people agree with me, to fellow West Indians is when you move to the United States, you know, <laughs> I, I do a little bit of law and economics. There's an information asymmetry problem. There are people who have lived in the United mm -hmm. States much longer than I have who know more about what it means to be black in the United States. I have a responsibility, as I do in any situation where I go and I have less information than other people who do have information to get some information, right? And so I believe I am a I am a better at many things than I would have been because I went out of my way moving to a new country to find out the information. The reason I'm analogizing that is I am saying as a parent who is parenting black children, I think you have the same responsibility. It is an Absolutely. information asymmetry problem. Forgive me for too much economics, law and economics type talk. <laughs> it's an information asymmetry problem, and you have a responsibility to, to mitigate that information asymmetry and to find out some information. And there are others doing the work, and I would encourage that that work be done. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for our final segment, what I would like to do, you know, Eleanor kind of alluded to these comments. Uh, one reason we even have this episode is because as we were listening to the Dobbs oral argument, Eleanor was yeah. texting me frequently <laughs> about how bothered she was about these comments. And I, I think the comments kind of speak to everything we've talked about today. You know, like, you know, maybe a Cavalier attitude towards adoption, not quite preparing uh, to be a black parent. Uh, so here is what uh, Justice Barrett said during oral arguments of uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. And we've only got five minutes left, so it's going to have to be quicker than I thought it would be. <laughs> but here are her comments. Uh, so petitioner points out that in all 50 states, you can terminate parental rights by relinquishing a child after birth. And I think the shortest period might be 48 hours, if I'm remembering the data correctly. It seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities, it's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is without question an infringement on bodily autonomy for which we have another context like vaccines. However, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between say the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? She then goes on to say, actually, as I read Rowan Casey, they don't talk very much about adoption. It's a passing reference that may, means out of the obligations of parenthood. So I, um, can I say two things no. about that? Um, so no. the first thing that I want to say is if you are a black woman in America, the risks of dying from pregnancy for you are substantially higher than they are for white women. Right. So pregnancy mm -hmm. is not this just 
you know, fun romp in the park um, uh, type situation. So that's the first thing. Um, and then the second thing sort of goes back to what I said before, right, which is that the ways in which she is denigrating the motherhood of these women who are giving birth, right? The idea that you would just take this baby who you carried for nine months and who you just gave birth to and drop them off at a firehouse and then go off um, and live your life, right? The implication of the, the lack of love, the lack of maternal instinct, the lack of bonding of a statement like that is really shocking, right? But take a race out of it. That is just shocking as a, as a starting point. And, you know, <laughs> You know, I'm trying to think of the most diplomatic way that I could characterize this argument. You know, <laughs> you're a law professor in the front of a class. You cannot tell us if a student said me, that to me in a class, right? It, it, the argument is in my, <laughs> you know, you have to bite your tongue and be sure that what you say is appropriate. But it is a, it, the argument is beyond the pale. It is beyond the pale. The notion that a woman exists to carry a child for, for nine months, to leave the child at the firehouse, and that involved no deep stress and, 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 and incredible loss for that woman. Is, and that is a, a, an appropriate argument in the context of Dobbs. It's just extraordinary to me, even before you reach the race question, even before you mm -hmm. reach the race question, not to mention these Haitian mothers who gave up their children so that these children are no her children. I mean, it's 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 problematic. It's highly, highly problematic. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. <laughs> um, and I feel like we may need a, a follow-up uh, conversation <laughs> just to talk about the Dobbs comment. And I knew this would happen with these two, that I would need like, you know, two hours of time. But I'm just mm -hmm. thankful that they could give me one. So thank you both so much for being on the show today. Um, for those of you who um, would like to continue to follow Professor Murchison, Professor Brown, their work is available on SSRN. Uh, their work is available online. You can find, find their information on their respective school websites. Thank you both for being here today. Next week, our, our topic will be why Elon Musk should stop tweeting. And my <laughs> guests will be Kathy Huang and Ben Edwards. We're going to you know, have a, a little business law professor episode that is very, very immersive into the things that we do and the things that we love. Uh, if you would like to continue following our episodes and to continue listening to Get In Common, it is always available on the Voice America Network. It's available everywhere uh, that you listen to your podcasts. And you can find me on social media at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you again to my guests. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.